At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast today. I always love to get scientists on the show that can tell us things about things that are really interesting to us, like the health of the Everglades or certain fish like bonefish, permit, tarpon, Jack Crevel. That's exactly what we're going to talk about, all of those things today. I have Dr. Jen Rehaj from FIU's Fishery Lab and Carissa Gervasi. She's a PhD student working with Dr. Rehash, and they are working on all kinds of stuff. Lately, we have had a fish kill in Biscayne Bay, which is very troubling to a lot of people. We're going to kind of understand what's going on there, what could possibly be the causes and what could possibly be the solutions and just kind of understand from a scientist's perspective what, what is going on there. I found that very, very interesting. And then the reason that I reached out to Dr. Rehash was to talk about a study that they're doing right now, which is on the Jack Crevel. And to my knowledge, there has not been a study on Jack Crevel before. Jack Crevels uh, are sometimes thought of as trash fish. I don't think of them like that. I think that the Jack Crevel is one of the most amazing game fish that there is in the ocean. It, if if it has any sort of a of a, a fault, it's that it is too aggressive and that it fights too hard, which are two things that I really love in a game fish. So anyway, we're going to learn all about the Jack Crevel study as well as bonefish permit tarpon and the effects of pharmaceuticals in our water what it's doing to these fish. Really interesting conversation coming up right now. Stay tuned. This is Dr. Jen Rehage. And this is Carissa Gervasi. And this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Hey guys, just a quick second before we get started here, a little bit of news and an update. I had planned on putting this podcast out a little bit later, but it was brought to my attention by a whole bunch of people tagging me on Instagram about the problems that Biscayne Bay is having since we recorded this podcast. So we talk about Biscayne Bay a lot and the problems that are going on, but since then there were some other kind of issues. A lot of people tag me in videos of dead fish and really poor water quality saying, you know, try to find out what's going on. So I really believe that that uh, Dr. Rehesh and um, Carissa Gervasi know really what they're doing. And she just sent me an email that I wanted to just kind of preface before we started this podcast. 
She says, from the latest sampling over the weekend, it looks like the oxygen is getting better, except in the canals. And there does not appear to be more new dead fish. But now algal blooms have flared up in the several in several locations, but they don't appear to be toxic. The source of all this is nutrients from sewage and fertilizer, etc., building up over time in the bay, plus being released with the high freshwater releases this summer that fuel algal bloom, blooms which consume oxygen and result in fish kills. This is a symptom of an unhealthy bay and a wake-up call that our bay may be on the brink of disaster, and we all need to mobilize to stop the nutrients from going into the bay. From revamping our sewage system to everyone in their home stopping using fertilizer and watching what is going down our drains. This is expensive, but it's a problem that is totally fixable. We have done it before, such in such as in Tampa Bay, a success of seagrass coming back and water quality improving after 30 years of efforts to reduce nutrients. So this is a really powerful podcast. What these ladies have to say and their research is really super important for Biscayne Bay and what's going on there. So I just wanted to give you that quick update. And now we're going on to the, the entire conversation and I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, thank you for doing the podcast today. I'm so glad to have you. I have so many questions and and I think that the programs that you guys are working on is are really, really cool. So you're at FIU University, is that correct? Yeah, Florida International University here in Miami. Okay. And Dr. Rehage, you um the the lab is named after you, is that correct? Yeah. It's okay. uh we've been here for about goodness, uh Close to 15 years at FIU, um, working on different fisheries uh, throughout the Everglades and South Florida. Okay, cool. So tell me a little bit about the program, like like what how it got started, what what you started working on, and maybe how that's changed over the years. Yeah, um, we started. You know, uh, our longest running project is a project in the Shark River, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been tagging and studying snook and bass in that system for about, oh goodness, 15 years now. Uh, and that's our longest and sort of, um, I would say, um, really sort of endearing to our hearts project because we just started such a long time ago. And for, we've been um, grateful to get continuous funding to study those, those guys in the river for a long time. And then we've expanded to study bonefish and look at the bonefish decline in partnership with Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Uh, most recently, we're looking at sea trout and redfish in association with the Florida Bay seagrass dials, and then jacks, which is uh, probably our most fun project. Yeah, and Carissa, you're heading up the uh, the jack program. Yes, yeah, so um, I'm working with the jacks for my uh, dissertation work. I'm working on my PhD. So that's kind of my uh, pet project, my baby. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I think that the the Jack Cravel has a soft spot in my heart. I have a soft spot in my heart for the Jack Cravel. I love those fish. They're day savers, and I just think they're they're amazing. Like they're just ravenous and mean and awesome yeah. all at the same time. And uh, they're they're super cool. And it's uh, I, I have tons of questions about the Jack Cravel, but right now. There are all kinds of issues going on. One in particular, uh, a fish die-off in Biscayne Bay. I, and I know that you're doing some work up there. I'd love to kind of get caught up on, on from a scientific point of view of what's going on there. And um, maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, like, can you fill us in on what's going on there a little bit? 
Yeah, it's it's a concerning and developing issue every day. We um, we've been collecting data. In fact, Carissa is going out tomorrow to collect oxygen data throughout there and do these surveys to figure out what is the extent of the die-off, where fish are being reported, and then what's the oxygen. So the main culprit of this very is low oxygen. So the fish are just you know starving and suffocating. Um, it's happening in the northern bay. From yesterday's data, it seems like it's moving further north. So this is north of 79th Causeway. It seems that's sort of now the um, epicenter. And you know the the causes we don't know exactly the cause, but very likely has to do with nutrients. Um, nutrients coming in from the bay. So, yeah, so we have nutrients. Uh, obviously, sewage is an issue. Any nutrients, fertilizer, all this runoff ends up in our bay. And our bay, poor thing, our bay is gets really abused. Um, and we've seen signs of stress. We had a, a die-off of seagrass that happened in 2016. About 50% of that area of that seagrass that's north of the Julia Tuttle Causeway died. And so there's probably nutrients and you know all that decomposition of the dead grass is fueling, um, is fueling some of the consumption of the oxygen. And then we have releases of freshwater. And as the freshwater comes through the canals, it's draining the urban landscape and picking up fertilizer, oil, anything that comes in, sewage leaks. Um, and that all ends up in the bay. So it's probably, a, it's very likely has to do with nutrients. And we know this is an issue and it's a, another sign of stress, you know. The right. Bay. So the the nutrients coming in are, are causing that in a couple of different ways. Like one of the things that I thought was interesting, you said that the, that, you know, it might cause grass to die off, which the grass is producing oxygen as we, as a, a plant does. So if it's not there and it's died off, then it's not producing the oxygen that it once would have. But then you have this decomposition that is, is chewing up oxygen, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah, exactly. And, and so like, what's the, What's the solution to that? Like if, if, if a hurricane came through and cleared out a bunch of that dead grass, would that help the situation? Or is it, is, is it once you have a big die off like that, like, is it? Yeah. Um, so it could, so that you could flush the system with an, with, um, with, an, with a hurricane coming in and the winds and the flow, but you would also dump a bunch of other fresh water, right? Because right. you would have flooding in the urban zone or more runoff and that fuels the system again. So it's a really hard situation to stop. And that's why, um, because you get these positive feedbacks, you know, the, the grass dies, then they create the additional fuel. It started with nutrients that came in from elsewhere via canal. And then you have, the grass dies and then you have additional fuel and then that fuels the algal blooms. We haven't seen that right. yet, but there's a couple of spots in the bay that have algal blooms. Certainly we've seen that in Florida Bay. And then that, that algae in the water prevents light from reaching the bottom. And then you have more grass die. So it's just like very much, you know, kind of like, um, kind of like these bad habit things where you eat a lot, you sit in front of TV and all you want to do is eat <laughs> and then you can't stop it. And you're right. in this bad cycle that you feel like crap. So you want to eat more and then you don't want to exercise. So it's kind of like that. So it's hard. Once you get to that state, um, it's hard to undo it. So, you know, one of the things we want to focus is preventing those nutrients from reaching the bay and the bay gets those nutrients flows through the canals and sewage leaks all the time. And it's not a sexy 
problem to fix because a lot of it is going back to to our sewage and, and getting better water treatment. And these are not, they're very expensive solutions and they're not sexy things to, you know, who wants to spend tons of money on on dealing with with human waste? It's not right. a um, I think that's well. You never want to until until that human waste starts washing up on the beach or or you know killing yeah. seagrass and everything like that. Plus plus it's something like you know if you're going to build a beautiful museum in a in a building in a in a town where everybody can see it, it's going to be this showcase. Okay, yeah, that costs fifty million dollars. Okay, right. And it's going to bring in tourism. All of this stuff is basically happening under under the ground. Yeah. Things that that are are old and antiquated and broken, and they need to be fixed under the ground where there's it, it, I could see why that's, you know, hard to kind of get your a, head around. That's not going to get you elected to office. Right. Probably. <laughs> well, well, I don't know. I mean, it, is it or isn't it not? Because you see so many of the Floridians now with the signs that say, you know, Republican, Democrat, water, you know, with water yeah. checked mm-hmm. off. Like, I think that people, certainly people that are listening to this podcast and people that, you know, are supporting Captains for Clean Water and Bull Sugar and all these others are you know, making their political decisions based upon who is taking care of Florida's best interest uh, as as far as it, as water goes. And, you know, I don't want to make this a political discussion at well, all, but this is, you know, it's an amazing thing. I think these guys, Bull Sugar and Captains, they're just an amazing force that has changed the way, you know, we think about these issues and uh, we're so lucky to have them. Uh, you know, we, like I, I've been involved with Everglades Restoration for 15 years and the conversation has changed because they've changed it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, it's just so wonderful. And in in your opinion, how did you see that? um, What was, what was the most effective kind of angle that they took to change that conversation? You know, I think uh, as a stakeholder that I, just what you mentioned, I love those signs about water. I think that's so powerful. I don't care what you think about that, but I Mm -hmm. just think that they're just amazing. Um, and as a stakeholder to have, you know, the energy focus on these water issues and, you know, the Florida Bay has been deprived of water since as far as we know, since the 1950s, you can go as far actually since the construction of of Miami Trail in 1920. So this is an issue. The Bay has suffered, suffers every day. And the fact that we could, you know, have these seagrass dials and water releases and tr- turn the attention in a positive way to make that better and bring people together. I think that's, we haven't had that. It's just really, really nice. Yeah. So one of the things that I think confuses people, and it certainly confuses me too, and even having a pretty intimate um, understanding of the, of the bay and fishing there a lot and being around it is that, you know, like one of the things that you just said is like, well, We'll get too much fresh water coming in, and that's a problem. But the problem is also that the fresh water has been cut off. So how do you how do you kind of explain that to somebody that is unfamiliar with the Everglades? Right. Like somebody that's from the Panhandle or somebody that's never been to the Everglades or understand this the the way that that works. It's like, well, these people say they want fresh water. Well, they just got a bunch, but now that's a problem. Right. right. So that seems yeah. to be kind of a disconnect that that maybe you could help us help everybody to understand a little bit. Yeah. And it, you have to go back and sort of give context. Um, I think for Florida Bay, the bay today gets a quarter of the water used to get. So think about your salary and take a quarter of it. Right. So explain yeah. explain why that is. Like you 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 mentioned the the building of the Tamiama Trail. And when they build that, there's obviously 
bridges, dikes, places where the water flow is being disrupted. But are there other reasons that that, that would be the case? Yeah. Uh, so we have that sort of basically taking the, the Everglades and cut them into little chunks where you just have all these impoundment canals and levees that prevent natural water flow from Lake Okeechobee as it would have been historically all the way down to the bay. That's the sheet flow that we would have had that would have brought four times the amount of fresh water we get today. By the way, in the dry season, the estimates that we have, which are really good estimates, is 20 times less water. So the bay would have gotten 20 times what it gets now in the dry season. So that's a huge number. Um, so there's, there's that part of it. And then we have, again, nutrients. We have we go to the Everglades agricultural area. We've been farming there for sugar since the 1930s and 40s. That water being used um, now has too many nutrients and we cannot send it south. Um, we have to clean it to do that. And we have the wonderful uh, ways to do this. We have the largest man-made wetlands in the world that are just north of the Everglades between the Everglades agricultural area and the beginning of the Everglades, right just north of I-75. And those work really, really well. They clean up the water. You can send the water through this. Basically, it's just grass, real species of plants that really like nutrients and they just grab it. Um, and then you flow the water really slowly through that. It comes out of the other day, or the other end, excuse me, clean. But the problem is that we don't have enough of those. So because we don't have enough of those plants or those artificial or natural artificial wetlands, I should say, then the water gets released out of the Kosahatchee and the San Lucie with terrible consequences, as you know, for those estuaries. And it has a lot of nutrients. And sending it south is not something we can do until we can clean up more of that water. We have the water. For every drop that comes through Everglades National Park, there is a drop that's being that goes out those rivers. So we have the water in the system. We just have to clean it up. Yeah, that's that's really good, and I appreciate you kind of taking us back because a, a lot of people are very interested in this issue, but they don't fully understand it. And it's very complicated. And when you're when you're close to it, sometimes you don't understand that it's like it's hard to get your head around it. So I appreciate that very much. And it's, there's all this engineering too, that, you know, kind of, it's a, it's a ton of plumbing in the system that makes it really complicated. Yeah. And so one of the things too, that um, I think that captains has done a good job of, and I'd love to hear your opinion about this is that I think that one reason that there may be a new kind of opinion about this is that it's like, okay, this seems like a very complicated problem. First of all, it used to be a big laminar flow. So even if we did have the water and put it in a pipe and send it south, that's not the same way that nature did it. Like it was this big, wide flow, very slow. And um, so it seems like a real complicated problem. And it would it would tend to make people say, well, I don't know. I don't think they're ever going to fix it. Right. But I think that captains has kind of outlined a plan that will fix it, right? So that's very simple for people to understand. So maybe we could go over that just a little bit too. Yeah, so, you know, and also I think the another part of that of that discussion with captains is that they unify the system. So kind of create that awareness that the issues that are, you know, that are happening in the St. Lucie and in Stewart, you know, and at the Kosahatchee where these guys are from are the same issues that prevents water from getting to Florida Bay. You know, it's the same issue. It's we have too many nutrients and we have to release the water. We have to clean it up and we have to send it south. Now, there are some challenges in how to get 
route itself. And those are engineering problems. For instance, if you put water now down this canal that goes in the boundary between the Everglades and the city, kind of around the, you know, the, the canal, as you drive into Flamingo, those canals that are on the boundary, C-111 and the L-31, if you put more water there, the water wants to go on towards the city because we've sucked up so much water from below ground underneath the city and the sort of relevance area that the water wants to go that way. So that's an engineering issue. So getting water to Florida Bay is hard. Hard to the extent to give you um, to give you sort of like a bit of an example, Tom. We are pouring cement along the canal into the ground to keep the water on one side and prevent it from going wow. in the wrong way. So there are those challenges. So on top of the fact that we have not enough, you know, not enough artificial wetlands to clean up the water that we have releases, then getting the water routed to Florida Bay is a challenge. Engineering just just really hard. Uh, because we have ag on one side that we don't want to flood and we have the park on the other side. And now it's really difficult to tell water, like, stay there. Don't yeah. come here. Water wants to go where it wants to go. Yeah. Well. So that's been a challenge. So, yeah, I mean, the things we've highlighted is we need, you know, and the things that happens and everybody knows we need to do, which at the end of the day are not that, you know, they're complicated things to do, but. There are just simple answers. We have to clean up more water as they describe and, and send it south. Yeah. Well, that's a that's also a very um, good explanation. And I think it will help a lot of people to kind of understand the situation a little bit better. Um, so when when you have a pressing issue like what's going on in Biscayne Bay and you're going to send Carissa out tomorrow to go take samples, you're going to sample for oxygen content in the water. And then you're going to do that in a lot of different places. And when you bring that data back, what what do you expect that that might tell you, or or do you have any idea, or are you just going to what will you do with that data? Krista, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So basically, what they're doing now, we're taking boats out and we're ru just running these transects where we're monitoring the oxygen, and we can you know, take all that data and we can look at it over time and we can see kind of where the low oxygen areas are and if they're moving. Because too, sometimes, you know, it's so hot and it's, um, everything is just kind of staying stagnant. The water isn't mixing. It's not moving around, but there are, you know, what there's water that comes in from canals that kind of pushes things around. And so those low DO areas, they can move. Um, and so we want to be able to track where that's happening. Um, they're talking to uh, citizens of Miami and having them report fish kills. So we're actually collecting all that data too. And so we have GPS points of exactly where and when people are seeing fish kills. And that can all help us monitor uh, the health of the bay, figure out if it's getting better, areas that it's getting worse. And then we have um, these areas where we're actually aerating the water. So um, I know Miami um, Fire um, has yeah. had their, they've taken their fire trucks out too. We have a boat that actually runs through and puts, basically puts oxygen back into the water. How are they so doing we, that? It's a, it's a big uh, barge that's used for the Miami River that's owned by the city. And it's sort of a water treatment, like imagine a mobile water treatment, right, Carissa? I'll yeah. Like a description. And it has a grabber for picking up things, uh, debris, like dead fish. And it also, it's pumping oxygen and it's running it through um, UV. So it's cleaning it up. So it's, mm -hmm. and it can do, I think, 30,000 gallons per minute. 
Wow. So it's moving around and clean up the water. So we, we saw an area where there were rays, right? That were concentrated and sort of gasping for air. So that was deployed there. So the city has been, I mean, it's been wonderful to see um, everyone come together, organized by Miami Waterkeeper, mainly putting all, all the efforts together and coordinating this. And put, um, sort of, you know, people trying to respond to places where fish are still alive and trying to make sure those fish don't die. Mm -hmm. um, so when, when you see something like that Ray example um, and they, they deploy this boat out there, are you seeing that all of a sudden the rays are like, Oh, that, like they just took a breath of fresh air and they can kind of go on their, on their way. Or, I mean, is it, is it that quickly? Like in an aquarium, like if you saw that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We saw the actual levels come up right after we, we put these mm -hmm. pumps and there are some localized pumps that were put in. And then the boats are circulating. And, you know, it's just even like the effort of, of the fire department putting out these trucks circulating the water. It's just amazing to see people come out to help the bay. And to give you some context, the bay, so we talked about Florida Bay and the changes in water. Biscayne Bay is even more dramatic. So Biscayne Bay used to be an estuary, meaning it would have low salinity. An estuary would, would get pulses of water from all these rivering connections and the sort of Everglades and these um, small connections and to larger connections like the Little River and the Miami River that will bring fresh water. So we have made it into marine lagoon, basically, where it gets these pulses of water, as you described, that are, can be really harmful because usually it's not just water. It's picking up, you know, our fertilizer right. and sewage along the way and some oil that we dumped in our backyard. All that stuff is going to end up in, that, in the bay at one point or another. So the, that bay is drastically changed. It's a different bay, and we're trying as much as we can to keep it as healthy as we can. But it's a challenge with, with you know, 2.5 million people living around it. Right. Yeah, I can, can imagine. I mean, there's so many challenges, and that's, that's what's kind of interesting about it. But I think that I, I really go back to it all the time is that education of kind of understanding what the problems are and that there are solutions. I think that that is the, the very best way. Yeah, you know, to move forward, and and I think that that's what so many of these groups have done. And as I said before, that that more people kind of understand what's going on and understand that there are solutions that can be had in our lifetime uh, than maybe ever before. And yeah, that's pretty exciting. I just think quote about this related. Um, it says, you know, the future does not belong to the pessimist. <laughs> Uh, is those people with positive attitudes are actually going to initiate change and they're going to do something about it. Um, so that was really positive, especially during these times to hear something like that. Uh, but yeah, no, I think there are solutions. They're expensive. They're going to mean we all have to chip in, but we can see that people are really, you know, in the past few years, I think we've gotten a sense um, of, I don't know, Carissa, I think it's kind of palpable. People are really, being interested in sort of Biscayne Bay and its mm -hmm. health and coming together, the, the municipalities, the county, the scientists, and we're seeing something that we have not seen before. Um, that was going to be my next question was, um, you know, you're, you're saying that there's been a lot of uh, um, interest in the Bay and right now there's a very pressing issue and it's getting some attention and, and uh, you know, on social media, you see the fish kills in Biscayne Bay. Is this something that has been happening before and not getting quite the, the publicity or is this, like you just said, this is something that we've never seen before. Um, is this entirely new or have we seen, seen piece bits and pieces of it in the past? You know, it's, I think this, 
the scale of fish scale is 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 a first. It's, un- okay. it's unusual. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really the largest scale. We've seen smaller fish scales, fish scales around the bay in different parts, like high temperature, low DO uh, in the summer, but they're very localized. And this is pretty large scale. It's a large part of the bay, and for those, you know, for all of us, it's just another sign of the bay's stress. It's you know on the brink of collapse, and people say uh, it's just it's an unhealthy bay that we need to clean up, mm-hmm. that we need to do something about our waste management. We have to uh, do something about people's and individual yards and how they use fertilizer. We need to think about the way we treat water. And this brings us to what we study with, um, you know, bonefish and pharmaceuticals. So just to, you know, pharmaceuticals, the all the things that people take to keep themselves healthy all the medicines, antibiotics, all of that stuff does not get removed by conventional water treatment. It yeah. goes right through. That's really interesting. You've done a, you've done a lot of work on that. I would love to know uh, more about that. Like, what? How did you discover that pharmaceuticals are in bonefish? Like, is that something that you went out specifically to target, or is that kind of like a byproduct of some other study that you realized that this is happening? What? How did that start? Well, you know. Um, we started looking at the bonefish decline, and as you know, it was you know very concerning. Um, the you know bonefish post 2010, and you know so the steady decline of bonefish that guides and fishermen were experiencing, and we were trying to sort of put together a timeline of when how that decline happened and where it happened and what was most severe, and then start thinking about what are the causes. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, let's, a- let's, let's stop right there for just a second, because a lot of people that listen to this, we have people that listen all over the world and all over the country. They may not fully understand the bonefish decline. So I'd love for you to kind of give us a, a, a timeline on that. There was a significant cold front that happened in 2010, which definitely killed a lot of bonefish. And then yeah. just to put a little context around it, if you go back to look at the record books in Isla Mirada, um, Almost every bonefish world record was caught in Isla Mirada in and it may not have made the record book and been broken in in Bimini or something like that, but pretty much every line class, every fly record has mm-hmm. been caught in Isla Mirada. There were you would leave out of the Lorelei or Worldwide Sportsman, and there was an area known as downtown Isla Mirada. Downtown Isla Mirada is basically any of the flats that you could see from standing at Worldwide Sportsman. That area, it was it wasn't about going out and trying to find a world record fish. Everyone that was fishing out of that area was seeing world record bonefish of a certain line class or fly class or whatever. It was a matter of catching them. So yeah. you would see a 15 pound bonefish. Now you may not be able to catch it, but they were there and they were there in big numbers. And there's all kinds of theories of why they were there. But if you go back today, they're definitely and this would be a, up for debate, they're definitely not the way they were at one point. So just that's just to put a little context from a fishing context. And I would love to hear what you think the timeline is from a scientific point of view. Yeah, so no, so we have a world-class fishery, right, that um, supported all these records that, you know, was a huge fuel to the Florida Keys economy that basically collapsed, bottomed up. I mean, I don't know if you 
Tom, would you go as far as describe it as sort of a collapse? Well, I, I think that that was a very special thing. Those really giant bonefish and like uh, uh, Andy Mill and his son have a podcast right now, the Millhouse podcast, and they did one with Mark Croca and he was yeah. talking about uh, all these big bonefish. And, and so they did a thing, you know, send us the pictures of your big bonefish and they probably got, I don't know, 200 plus pictures of these big 13, 15 pound bonefish that people were catching 10, 12 pounders, big ones, giant ones. Yeah. Well, you don't see them. You don't see them caught at yeah. the frequency that they were once caught. Um, I don't, I'm an eternal optimist. I like to think that, you know, there's always hope, right? But it, it's kind of a collapse of those big ones. Yeah. Now, you certainly were catching some smaller ones. And then we have something else, which is really nice going on right now. In the lower keys, the bone fishing is better than I've ever seen it and better than most of the guides that I've ever talked to. You know, guys that have been down there for 40 years, they've never seen anything like this. There's bone yeah. fish everywhere. And so that's, that's terrific. But going back to the Isla Morata thing, I would say that it be, it would be fair to call it a collapse of that fishery. Good. Yeah, we thought we thought so, too. So we interviewed, uh, you know, a uh, number of guides, and then we uh, did surveys to try to, because the problem with bonefish being a catch and release fishery and not being a federally managed species is we don't have records, right? We don't have counts. We don't have stock assessments. We don't have these tools that let us know how many fish are, are there and what's the fishery doing. So we lacked those tools. So we had to kind of go around and sort of do what we would call like investigative reporting applied to, to fisheries and talk to everybody involved in the fishery and say, okay, so what, when did you see a decline? How good was it? Where was it good? Where did this sustain good and stay good? You know, and we talked to people and said, you know, we, there, there are these flats that I know, and I haven't seen a bonefish there in 10 years. And it yeah. freaks me out. Like why are these bonefish gone? Um, so, and it's interesting because if you think about the, the parallels of doing this on land, if we had a species that you just all of a sudden you lost and you didn't see it anymore, we would be freaking out. We would be doing all kinds of things, you know, endangered species listing, all kinds of activities, management plans, but because they're on the water, um, you know, they're kind of out of sight. We think that they're going, they've gone somewhere else perhaps, or they've moved and it's sort of a different, you know, we just deal with water differently in our minds. Mm. Um, so that's something to think about. Like if, you know, this had been a, a land animal that all of a sudden disappeared, we'd be like, wow, we need to do something. Um, so we we put together a timeline and it seemed like by the late 1980s was sort of like that beginning of the decline that you can see on the tournaments and, you know, the, on those catches going down. So the oldest bonefish that's been aged is a 21-year-old bonefish. Um, so do you know how we, big that was offhand? 700 or millimeters. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to put that in fisherman's terms. <laughs> Although I like that measurement because you're like, I caught one that was 700 millimeters. Oh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it was a big guy. Um, so we, you know, starting putting together, what we've seen is a decline, which seems to be most. And then we, we also know that we have this most severe decline in Florida Bay. Uh, also some decline happening in, in the lower keys, although now we had this sort of shift of the effort and fishery because we have more fish down there. And then Biscayne Bay doing better, which is surprising. Like why is Biscayne Bay able to hold some of those large fish that are may still, some of them may still be around, but obviously not in the numbers that we saw earlier. So why do we lose those big fish? 
we have hypotheses. We have, you know, our sort of our stomach, you know, our gut content, our gut contents, our, our gut feelings about this as scientists. Um, but I think what we happened is we had a few years where we just didn't have enough recruitment. We didn't have new fish coming into the bay. And for, for bonefish, we don't even know where our fish come from. We have some theories about that, about connectivity. Um, so we don't know where they spawn, and we don't know if our bonefish that we have in the Keys were are the sons or daughters of fish from the Keys. They could be, we know that given flow conditions, they could be the, our fish, our fish supply could be um, the product of uh, Southern Cuba, Belize, and Mexico, very likely given. So we might be dependent on larvae that are actually born elsewhere. Mm. To what extent do we get larvae that are local versus larvae that could be coming from somewhere else? We don't really have a good sense. Wow. Uh, we don't even know our spawning irrigations where they happen in the Florida Keys. We do know that given also current models where we model like a little particle and where it goes, you know, sort of in, in sort of model land, we know that northern upper keys fish or fish spawn in Biscayne Bay, those those larvae would be shot up because of the Gulf Stream, as you can imagine, north. Lower keys spawning. This is why what you mentioned about that, those fish being more abundant in the lower keys, that's really important because we, if they're spawning in the lower keys, that larvae are more likely to stick around mm. in the keys and supply the lower keys. Now, why, key. why is that? Because of the of the the flow or what? Because of the currents, yeah, the way okay. the currents flow. So that and and bonefish are in that larval stage for thirty to sixty days, which is really long. So they're floating as kind of little eel like, sort of you know inch and a half little eel like. And what do they need when they're that age? Do they need a certain salinity of water? Or do they need um, a certain type of, of habitat? Uh, that is a really, really good question. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, we don't know. Uh, we do know a couple of things that we learned. We, um, we can go, Chris, I can tell you about this. You can go to the ear bones of fish, and we're doing this with jacks, as a matter of fact. So you can take the ear bone of fish, which is used for balance and mm -hmm. hearing. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen those little yeah. tiny. Ooh, ooh, yeah. lists, right? Ooh, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay. I may pronounce it wrong, but uh, that's it. You know. Yeah. Um, you can take those little guys out. Um, and we're, we're doing this with jacks, right? We've done a few. Yeah. So. The as the fish grows, these otoliths or ear bones grow with the fish and they're inert. Um, they're made up of calcium carbonate. Um, so what happens is as the fish grows, they retain the ear bone retains the chemical signature of whatever water body that fish was living in. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So if it, when yeah. it's a baby, like you can look in the very center because it, it also grows and they lay down concentric rings. Right. That's like, what that's what I did know about them. That there was that was mm -hmm. one way that you would age a fish. Yeah. But I had never heard about this other uh, thing that you're saying that you're getting off of it. Yeah. So it's it's really cool. And you know, each water body has a distinct chemical signature to it, depending on if you have a lot of nutrients coming in, if you have very high salinity, if you're in cold water. Um, this all changes the chemical structure of the environment. So if fish move between two environments that are very distinct chemically, we can see that transition within the otolith, which is really neat. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. 
It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, okay, well, let's, let's go back real quick to the, yeah. to the bonefish before we move on to yeah. the jacks because I've got plenty of questions about the jacks. So we kind of got a little bit off track given kind of a timeline of what might have happened with the, with the bonefish in Isla Mirada. And we were talking about originally like how you determined that there were pharmaceuticals in the fish and what those oh, pharmaceuticals right. <laughs> might be doing to the fish. Is it yeah. a bad thing? Is it, does right, it matter? Right, right. Like, I don't know. Yeah. So we looked into pharmaceuticals as a potential and contaminants in general as a potential, you know, a mortality, things, uh, you know, a factor that could cause mortality in bonefish. And that's why we ended up in pharmaceuticals, looking at what causes could it be driven. Uh, for instance, like you were describing the larvae. So the little larvae are out in the ocean floating for two months and then eventually have to make their, their way to land, to shore probably, we think, just what we call settle. They come out and they settle and they start looking like a little tiny mm -hmm. bonefish. Um, and, we, and the question is, where are those habitats, right? Because those are habitats you can think, you want to protect those habitats and you want right. to make sure those habitats are intact. They also larvae, we know from other species, they rely on all kinds of cues. They can smell land. They can vertically migrate in the water column, respond to light. So these larvae, um, they're, they're really hard to study, but we know from other, other species that they are smart and they respond to a lot of cues. So if we change, for instance, the, the way the, the coast smells, you know, um, because we've added chemicals or mm. because we changed the amount of fresh water, then you can expect that those larvae might be disoriented. Just like we do, we see with sea turtles, right? They, we put right. lights on and they can't find the water. So these larvae could be disoriented. This is one of the potential causes of, of bonefish decline. Uh, maybe something happened to the spawning stock and they stop spawning or they are doing something different or we're, if we're dependent on those stocks of, of fish that are spawning in Mexico, maybe something happened there. But maybe your larvae can't get to the right place. So when they get there, those places are not as good habitat and they're having you know, higher mortality or they're not growing as fast. Hmm. So one of the things we did with the otolith is we looked at the chemical composition of, of bonefish that died in the 2010 cold front. So scientists at the University of Miami collected all these fish. Um, they aged those. And that's how we know that 21-year-old, I think, came from that batch of fish from 2010. And then we looked at the chemical composition along each little ring, just like at the tree. Imagine like taking mm -hmm. a little chemical yeah. sample along each little ring. And we found out that about 50% of those bonefish that we collected from Florida Bay and Biscayne Bay, and we did this also in, from fish from Cuba, had a signature that indicated that the early part of their life history was in some low salinity environment. Okay. So we're like, wow, what does it mean? We've been looking for baby bonefish in our beaches and the Keys. But maybe they're spawning. These little baby fish are recruiting to uh, to these low salinity environments, which which would mean like the shoreline, right, of Biscayne Bay, mm -hmm. uh, maybe the Western Everglades. Although we don't think they can reach those, the models don't go up like the Shark River and sort of that western part. And maybe that shoreline of Biscayne Bay. Yeah, and these are areas that, as you know, that are very drastically changed. Yeah, so that's really interesting because you know some of the places that I've been in the world that have the biggest population of bonefish don't seem to have much fresh water like yeah, the Bahamas. Yeah. I mean, you can find, you exactly. can find uh, like, like, like blue holes or, or some yeah. stuff like that. And there's obviously fresh water under the ground, which is yeah. probably percolating up in places that we don't, 
understand or, or yeah. have an ability to see. But right, some, right. those are some of the biggest, greatest populations of bonefish. Where, while on the other hand, in Mexico, you have a lot of bonefish and and like those caves. What do they call those caves? Um, yes, a cenote. Yeah. And uh, and those are all yeah. over. So there, yeah. if those cenotes are there, then there's probably tons of places where there's freshwater percolating up that you don't, you, you would have no ability to see, but maybe the bonefish no, I know, could. exactly. So in the Bahamas, our colleagues that study bonefish there, they go with a sand hole and they go to Eleuthera and these little sandy beaches and they get little moharas and little bonefish everywhere. <laughs> they're just like in these little sand, you know, like you, you get five moharas, one little bonefish, and they're easy to catch, they're easy to find, and they're pretty common. See, that's, and here, I think... We found baby bonefish like ten places. Yeah, well, that's super interesting because you know, in in the lower keys, I've never seen one. I've never seen a baby bonefish. I have seen really really small ones in permit? the Bahamas. Okay, but yeah. what we do see are the baby permit, and the permit yeah. are the size of a dime or a quarter, like really yeah. small. And they're doing exactly what you're talking about. They're right up on the first time I ever did it. We were eating fried chicken. You know, and and here they come yeah. up to eat the fried chicken. You know, yeah. and uh, and it's you like I think those are permanent. You know, and they're they're tiny, but you're seeing those. You know, obviously, in the Everglades, you can go back and see some fairly small tarpon. I mean, like a seeing. I always thought that was the coolest to see how where you could find the smallest tarpon, and yeah. uh, you don't even have to catch them. Just like these, see these little things just rolling is is really cool. But yeah. the bonefish, I've I've never seen that. I've, yeah. I've never seen so, a small one. We have a study, a different study, where we're looking just next to um, to snakebite in Garfield, but in Garfield, um, in Garfield, uh, just a little to the east. So we go to Garfield Bite and we're seining for prey, and this is an area the salinity changes, and lo and behold, what do we find? Baby bonefish. Really? That <laughs> yes. is amazing. That is really cool. And we're like, what is going on? What are now, these when you, How how small are they? The ones that you're finding there, like we found the little um, the eel like. And um, oh, they don't even look like bonefish yet. Both we found the tiny bonefish about this big, and then we found the eel like uh, also. Um, so the when when these things are are so rare to see, and and probably people like Carissa have never seen one before, except yeah. in a textbook. <laughs> who is who is is wise enough to go? What is this? I think it's a baby bonefish. Um, I mean, is that something that you would just know, or if you've never seen one of these things, how would you, are you just sampling everything? Like, okay. yeah, we're, you know, we're running sains and looking for prey. So this is a different study that's trying to assess, uh, the amount of prey available for juvenile tarpon and, and, and snook in that area and the lakes, sort of the McCormick and the alligator Creek area. So we are saining for something totally different, um, through, you know, through the mud and the muck and the water quality there is horrible. There is, you know, seagrass style, it gets harbor saline, it's super hot, it's very stressful. But yet in our same holes, we found both of those, the leptocephali, which is the little eel-like transparent. And the those look very similar for um for bonefish and for tarpon and and, and um ladyfish, because there is sort of a old sort of uh, type of fish mm -hmm. from the same family that have the same kind of larvae. Uh, and then uh, we ID it and it was, they were bonefish. And also the tricky thing with bonefish is we have three species of bonefish. So you have to do genetic testing to figure out which one it is. What are the three species of bonefish? And are those in the Florida Keys? All three species we are have in, the in the Florida Keys. Yeah. So Volpes is the one that enters the, the fishery, but we have these other, there's some deep water bonefish that uh, people catch. They're smaller um, that come up in the fishery gorienses. So we see some of that. Um, and 
as larvae, you cannot tell them apart unless you do genetic testing. So we send this for genetic testing. We said, and then we had both species, Sorienses and also the um, the Vulpes, which is the one that's- So the is fishery. there a third? You said there were three species. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What is the name of the third? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, there's, they're called cryptic species because- they're it's hard to tell them apart um well sedanta is the third species yes i remember it yeah okay and so what what's their behavior like they're associated with freshwater we don't know a lot about them um because you you know when you get a bonefish unless you you people rely on habitat that specific so i don't know if you you've heard people getting bonefish at uh, 100 feet right or sure 40 feet. Yeah, yeah yeah so those are probably Caribbeans, and they have a slightly different morphology. People say they look more of a little cigar, right? They're kind of stocky yeah. and short. Um, but most of the flats fish are vulpes. So I used to see this guy, Vinny San Germano, and he had a big offshore boat, and he would bring these bonefish to the table, and he would catch six or eight of them. But it would happen every fall, and he wouldn't catch them. At, I mean, he would kind of catch them at the same time of the year, and that's what he said is like, you know, he's fishing like 150 feet of water, and I think. Um, I think yeah. I saw um, Rush Maltz the other uh, within the last month. He posted something about catching a, a bonefish in deep water. Yeah. Um, so this is probably Gloriensis. Yeah. And we don't know a lot about them. Uh, we know there's probably segregation and time of maybe when they spawn. Also, might be different from when they spawn where our bulpies spawn. But there's certainly different 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 habitats. So mm-hmm. one of the questions that came up with the recovery is. Could these fish coming back not be bulpies? Mm. You know, they might be Gloriensis because. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But it, we don't think that's likely. We think more likely is that we had, you know, a couple years of good recruitment, you know, because you're seeing these bonefish that are, what, 25 inches, mm-hmm. right? Five, six pounds are getting bigger and bigger. And then now we go, you go out in the flats and you're getting bonefish that are like low 12 inches, right? And those one pounders and two pounders are also there. So that's really nice because now we, we have repeated years of, you know, class year classes mm-hmm. that are coming in. That's something that's very interesting about talking about that in the history of this. I mean, 20 years ago, we would catch bonefish, um, and I can't really speak on Island Marotta. I didn't fish up there as much as fishing in the lower keys, but you would, I, I had never seen a small bonefish. It was eight pounds or bigger. Like you just didn't see them any smaller yeah. than that. And maybe I wasn't very good at looking for them as, as good as I am now at looking for them. Cause I've learned a lot since then, but, but it was, it was pretty obvious there were only big fish there. And it, even, even as a young gla- guide, I'm thinking, well, I see small permit, I see small tarpon, I see small jacks, I see small barracudas, but I don't see small bonefish. Like, why is that? And where are yeah. those small ones? And am I missing something? Cause it would be cool to go catch small ones. Cause they're obviously be a lot easier to catch than these big ones, but yeah. I've just, they just were not there. And you know, guides would say, I've never caught a bonefish under eight pounds in the Florida Keys. And I mean, the Isla Mirada guys were catching more and smaller ones too, because they, I mean, there was a healthier bonefish population yeah, up there, right, but in, right. the, in the lower Keys, we, we just did not see the small ones for a long time. And now they're around, right? So yeah, now we're getting, and now they're around. Yeah. So, so, those are- so you're doing all this research. Um, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to get back onto the, the pharmaceuticals. Um, you're doing all this research and somehow you find out that there are high levels of pharmaceuticals in some of the bonefish, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so we have, what does that tell us? What does that tell us about the, do we know that that's harmful to the bonefish? Cause I don't know if you had a bonefish that was having a lot of Xanax, maybe that would be easier to catch. I think maybe, maybe some of the fishermen would be like, this might be okay. Um, but 
do we know that it's harmful for them or is it something that they're just carrying that has no effect on them or what do we know about that yeah we we stumbled on pharmaceuticals we have some really good colleagues that work on salmon and 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 uh, Sweden, and they've been looking at the effects of pharmaceuticals on their salmon and other fisheries and lakes. And they've been looking at antidepressants, actually, mm-hmm. as you as you yeah. mentioned. And they have found a number of things. The fish that are exposed, and they've done exposure studies. They've done uh, tracking of the animals as they migrate. All kinds of studies. And you know, this is about ten years of work. And so they contacted us and we know them well, they're excellent scientists, the top notch and, and sort of top of the world as a, as, a, as a people that are working on this issue of pharmaceuticals and fish. And we said, you know, if you guys collect some samples, we'll analyze them for you, send us some tissue or a blood sample and we'll run it for you and see if there's anything, you know, just, just to see what, what would come up. So we send them samples, a few samples of incident mortalities that we got from anglers and guides, you know, that fish that may have died, um, hooked or what have you. And we took a little sample, shipped them to Sweden, expecting nothing. And while there, we're, you know, talking to people and investigating the sort of decline. And sure, lo and behold, they come back and they have pharmaceuticals and they have opiates. Interesting. Yes. And now we've done more sampling, both here in the Bahamas and all of the fish we've analyzed. We've only done about 20 fish, 10 from the Bahamas, 10 from the Florida Keys. All of those fish have pharmaceuticals in them. Uh, some of them, some of them as high as five pharmaceuticals, different types of pharmaceuticals in them. So that's really concerning. And now we're systematically sampling throughout the Florida Keys, also comparing to places like Belize and Mexico, where we would think, you know, those places might be really safe and there's less people, less, you know. Less, less pressure, those fish may not get as exposed from pharmaceuticals, the Bahamas, Puerto Rico, and South Florida. And our thought is like, okay, our, probably our Biscayne fish might be super exposed, but as we go down the Keys and, you know, fish, and we've done better with sewer, right? Cause we've gone, we've done better things in the Keys with water treatment. Um, although the pharmaceuticals are still getting through, conventional water treatment does not remove them. But as we go down the Keys and population density gets lower, you might expect, well, maybe the Key West fish are not exposed. Maybe the um, maybe the dry tortugas. No, no, there's a lot of stuff going on in Key West. (laughs) (laughs) You might find anything in those fish. Yeah. So, so, so that's where we are. We're taking blood samples from fish all throughout throughout um, everywhere in South Florida, and then we're sending those samples to Sweden for analysis. And they have a bunch of samples that were here in March, and we we sample west of Key West. And we ship about a hundred samples. That's interesting. So, with the salmon, have they determined that that these pharmaceuticals are harmful to the fish? Did it change their behavior? Did are, do we know anything yes. about that? Because they've obviously been studying that a lot longer than than yeah. The bone yeah. Fish. So it's super interesting. I think the thing that struck us sort of that most striking finding from their from their work is their um, their their exposed fish are more antisocial, which could be an issue when you're in a spawning irrigation. They are bolder, they take more risks. And as a result of that, they migrate faster. So uh, salmon migrating uh, back to the ocean migrate faster and they die. They die more. Wow. So these are fish that have been exposed to 
um, antidepressants in particular, because expertise has been antidepressants, it's been the biggest concern in Sweden. So they, they're exposed to the antidepressants, they take more risks, they're less social, they eat faster, they migrate faster, and as a result, they get eaten. So they've tracked the mortality rate of these fish coming out of the river, and these fish exposed to, um, to pharmaceuticals die more. We think because they're taking more risks. Wow. That's super interesting. So yeah. hopefully that uh, is not something that happened. I mean, I would imagine that, that a certain species might be more affected but than, than others. And maybe it turns that's out that the bonefish doesn't, is, isn't affected in the same way as the salmon, but that's super interesting. So um, I definitely want to get to this, the, the Jack study. So let's, let's kind of shift gears and, and move over to the Jack study because actually the Jack study was the reason that I, I, initially made the phone call to get you both on the podcast. Um, I'm very interested in jacks. I don't know of any other group studying jacks. So yeah, there isn't anybody. <laughs> so there's never been there's never been a study on on Jack Cravels that you know of or so there's been, been a, there's um a group from Columbia who's done um some work on like Jack basic mm-hmm. biology. There's been some studies on their diet, um, a few things. Uh, in Africa, we, we see Corral Jack throughout the Atlantic. So they're off the coast of Africa as well as off the coast of the U.S. And there are some studies there that have looked at their populations. But in the U.S., they've, for the most part, just been ignored. And mm-hmm. they get a bad rap, you know. <laughs> so well, well, they certainly get a bad rap for angling. But how do you, how do, you do this, like... Obviously, it's it's easier to get funding for a study or to get permission for a study. I don't know how it works with with launching a scientific study, but if there's some food value to the fish or there's some like a bonefish and a permit, and then you have like uh, Bonefish Tarpon Trust, which is obviously um, bringing in some money and some funding and and making it their life's work to you know fund these type of studies when you have a fish like a jack crevel or a bluefish or a or a um I, I don't know something like a maybe a barracuda even that how do you what is there a challenge to to getting the go ahead to to study this and to launch this study and i mean you're looking at like a five, do you have to put like a 5 year plan together or whatever and then that's going to have a price tag on it it's going to be like Okay, is there going to be a return for? I mean, it has to come down to financial at some point, right? So, how does that work? How do you do that with a new fish like a jack? So, this, I mean, we would never have been able to do this project if it wasn't for the fishing guides in the Keys. This is a very angler driven thing where they came to us, some guides from the lower Keys specifically, and they said, Hey, we are not seeing jacks as much as we used to. We think this is a problem. And you know, that kind of gave us the incentive and we were able to apply for some more funding from different sources and saying, hey, you know, these fishing guides, they're really seeing a problem and we want to address that. So this is a a really interesting project in a sense, at least for me, I love that it's coming from the stakeholders and it's really great when we can partner with these fishing guides who are out on the water constantly, they know the environment better than we do, you know? So getting information from them about what the problems are and what might need to be looked at. And then we can take that and we can say, you know, this might be an issue. This is something we need to look into scientifically. Hmm. That's interesting because at the same time that there's a, a slight decline in the jacks, Jack Crevel specifically, 
there has been a, an explosion in the yellow jack. Yeah. Are you aware of, of the numbers of yellow jacks? It's, it's astronomical. I mean, places that I've never numbers? seen yeah. them before, there's swarms. Yeah, they're everywhere, but they also, you know, have no protection and they're getting hammered. Right, right. <laughs> and I, wonder if, I wonder if those are, if, if you'll find eventually that there's some correlation, like, like if you were to, um, you know, bonefish and redfish are often in the same area. And if you have yeah. a whole lot of one, you might have a lot less of another yeah. of the lesser uh, 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 one, one feeds a little more aggressively or whatever. It's so it true. might push the other that. out a little bit. Yeah. There could be some competition, some, you know, displacement of one or the other. Uh, we saw that with the coal front, you know, the 2010 coal front where we lost a ton of snook. And this is a hundred year event. The coal front was a one in a hundred year event, super severe cold event that's super rare. And as the snook died, what we, we saw redfish, right? There were just tons of redfish occupying the same, what we would call niches or habitat or foraging and maybe released from competition from snook, maybe using the same places that snook use. Snook are not there and now redfish are moving in. So there could be some of that, but yellow jacks are probably are also a strong concern for us because they have no protection and um, they taste good. Yeah, as a right. I mean, that, is, that is such a big deal. I mean, because yeah, you can just I, get as many as you want. Yeah. And that's going to be our, our next decline. We're anticipating it's going to be yellow jacks. Okay. Well, um, that's, that's, I, I hope that that doesn't happen because they are a great target and, and they're, you know, they're very plentiful right now and they can also be a, a day saver. But um, as far as a, a game fish goes, I think you would have more tourists that catch Jack Cravels than catch bonefish. I think you would have more tourists that catch Jack Cravels than you have catch permit or tarpon. I mean, a lot of people catch Jack Cravels. A lot of fishing guides may not want to admit it, but a lot of their living comes from the Jack Cravels. And these guys in the lower keys that you're talking about probably know that very, very clearly, but it's a very, very important fish. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. So let's go back to kind of launching this study. And how does that start? And what are you hoping to... like? I don't know, in a scientific method, you don't hope to find anything, right? You, so right. What, what do you, what do you, how does that start? Like what kind of information are you looking for when you launch a program on jacks? Yeah, so we're basically taking what the anglers have told us and we're trying to figure out what's going on. So number one, are Jack Creval actually in decline? And then if so, when did that decline begin? Kind of you know, the same thing that we did with the bonefish, essentially. When did the decline began, begin? Where is it happening? Why is it happening? And then taking that and saying, okay, X, Y, Z, these fish are probably in decline. Now, what do we need to do to protect them? Mm -hmm. So it's a very management-oriented kind of study right. where our end goal is to actually get jacks on some kind of management plan um, that it will work for them and to, will help to restore and conserve their population for the future. Mm -hmm. And when you're kind of uh, launching into this, are you going to get some flats guides, some offshore guides, some trolling guides? 
um, and, and try to get the widest perspective possible? Yeah, so we've done already a bunch of interviews uh, with fishing guides all throughout the Keys. Um, and I'm also, we're looking at these long-term data sets that exist. So there's not a whole lot of um, data that's been collected specifically on jacks, but um, there are some agencies like the National Oceanic, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Um, they have been running a recreational information program survey for decades. And this is actually dockside interviews that they conduct with recreational fishermen. It's been going on since like the 80s or, or earlier. Um, and we can take all of that data, we can pour through it, and we can see if what anglers have been observing over time has changed. So we look at changes in catch rates, we look at commercial landings data as well. And we're trying to figure out if what the fishermen are telling us is matching with these data sets that we're, we're, we're collecting. So it's kind of piecing all of these little bits of information together to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah. How hard is it to, to maintain a scientific mind in that point when you have like conflicting data, like these people are telling you this, but the data is not showing it. So either those fish have moved or they're not showing up in those same places, which could be an issue of its own, of its own, right? Like if they're not showing, if, if you saw jacks in this channel for 20 years and there are no jacks in that channel anymore, but the overall numbers of jacks have gone up, there still could be something going on that's of concern in that particular area. So is that a, how do you do that as a scientist to, to maintain that scientific <laughs> mind? I, I would imagine that's challenging We've at times. Yeah. <laughs> but we have some methods, like, especially when we're going through data sets, we have these modeling tools where we can kind of uh, throw in a lot of the factors that we think might be driving fish abundance, like temperature, um, seasonality, you know, all sorts of factors. And we can try to account for those so that when we look at a trend over time, we're just looking at a trend in abundance. And obviously it's not perfect. You know, models aren't perfect representations of reality. And there's always a lot of different factors that we might not even think about. Um, that could influence jacks. But, you know, we kind of, we have a process that we go through. We try to take it step by step. And then when we get the results, we have to kind of take them at face value for what they are. Like, here are the caveats of the methods we use. This is what we think is the data is telling us. But at the end of the day, you know, there there are limitations. Right. But Right. So how long has this jack program been going? Since about fall 2018. Okay, so you've uh, you've you've accumulated a, a tremendous amount of data, right? So so far. Yeah, you know, and I think you know what we're trying to do with Jax is what really gives us confidence, and I think just like other other things we do in life is if we have multiple lines of evidence pointing in that direction, then it, it gives us confidence, right? Just so you can imagine that you know you talk to a bunch of guides and they say, well, you know, the decline has been more serious in the lower keys than the upper keys, then there's something to that. And then we then we look for data that can speak to that process, you know, to that pattern and say, okay, do we see a signature or we see a, a, a signal that same thing happening in this data set and that data set and that data set. Um, and then we can say, okay, we have some corroboration and we have some robust kind of confidence that 
there's something going on with Jax because now we looked at three independent data sets and the guides and the what and their expertise and what they've seen, which is just as valuable for us. It's just another. It's probably the most important piece of the puzzle because sometimes we don't. We're not sampling in areas. The guides are the only people. Wow. Right. Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, fishing guides are, I mean, that's what they do for a living. Scientists yeah. do not do that for a living. You, I mean, you're, you, you're, you're, you're a scientist, right? A fishing guide is someone that, that tracks down and catches what they're after. Uh, it's very easy to go bone fishing and never see anything if you don't know what you're doing. Well, another guy saw a hundred of them, right? So yeah. uh, the fishing guides, I would think would be the number one kind exactly. of thing. Plus, you know, the offshore guides are able to, to tell pretty, pretty well, like here's a giant mark on my bottom machine. I drop one butterfly jig down there and it's a Jack Cravel. These are all Jack Cravels. Like mm -hmm. you, know, yeah. you can, so you can, you don't even have to count them. It's like, well, that cloud used to be five times that size. And now I'm only seeing this yeah, many, right? right? So, so some, some sometimes I would think that the offshore guides may even be a better source of information than the inshore guides, but on the Jack specifically, yeah. Are you um, sampling a lot of these because there there aren't really limits? So you can people could could bring you samples. You can take your own samples. Are you learning anything about the diet or about the the range of these jacks? How they move? Yeah. So we actually have a big movement study um, where we are tagging jacks with acoustic transmitters. Um, and, you know, for those who don't know, they're basically, uh, someone told me they're likened to like a SunPass system. Yeah, that's a good, so, that's a good example. Yeah. <laughs> so we kind of, we implant this little tag in, it's a small surgery. We put it inside the abdominal cavity. It doesn't hurt the fish at all, um, but it's a transponder and it sends out a, a signal that can get picked up by these receivers that sit on the bottom of the ocean. So whenever the fish swims past a receiver, it'll log that specific tag number and the date and time that the fish swam by. And we are very fortunate here in Florida that we have a huge network of scientists who have these receivers in the water and we all collaborate and share data. And that's for all different kinds of fish. Like the bone yeah. fish study might, you might, yeah. uh, Jack might swim by one of the, one of the transponders that was put out there for the yeah. bone fish. Okay. Okay, good. Yep. So they'll say, hey, you know, we cut, we picked up one of your fish. Awesome. And so uh, we've been able to track so far, we've tagged about 80 Creval Jack um, throughout the Keys. Um, we've put some tags out on the east and west coast of Florida. And we've even put some tags out up in um, the northern Gulf of Mexico with some help from colleagues up there. Um, and we have seen some really cool stuff. So these jacks are moving a ton. <laughs> Um, we actually saw a few fish move from Fort Lauderdale on the East Coast, down around the Keys and up to Tampa Bay wow. on the West. Um, so there's connectivity between the East and West Coast. We see fish moving out of the Keys and up the West Coast. Um, so that's really helpful information that's going to help us figure out how best to manage these fish. Now, on the fish that are moving like that, those big movements, especially like the Fort Lauderdale to Tampa, are, mm -hmm. is there a certain size that you're noticing that these these fish do it? Or it, do they have to get to a certain size before they make these big moves? Or is, are all of them doing that? So the, the fish that we're tagging have a minimum size of about 15 inches just because the size tag that we use 
you can't put it in a fish that's too small. Mm -hmm. So we only have movement data for fish that are give or take 15 inches and above. Um, it's interesting. We we're still, you know, kind of going through collecting data. Um, so we're not sure yet, but some of the fish that move really far are larger and some of them that move really far are on the smaller side yeah. of that range. So it doesn't really seem to be at least yet that it's a size driven thing, or at least once they at least hit that 15 inch size, yeah. they can move. So far. we have a lot of 20, 28 inches that mm -hmm. we've tagged and those seem to be moving, but you know, for Jack's, we only have data about sexual maturity from the study in Columbia, right, Carissa? Mm -hmm. And they mature at 25 inches, which is pretty big. Yeah. 45 yeah. years old. That's, so, that was my next question is like, do we have an idea of what the spawning size is? So 25 yeah. inches is, and, and a 25 inch jack, I would say is probably about seven pounds, maybe yeah. six mm -hmm. pounds, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Right? Seven, eight pounds. Yeah. So, you know, that's a big jack. That's not a small jack. Um, so we were trying to figure out, we don't know where they spawn. We know, we, I'm the, the, the thinking is they spawn offshore. Um, yeah. There is one, there's one study off the coast of Belize that saw spawning populations of actively spawning jack creval, but we've never seen, that, seen them spawning in Florida. So a study like that off Belize, what would be the purpose of that? But are, are some people seeing the Jack Crevel as food fish? I know that, that, that if you caught a ton of them, they might turn into cat food. They might turn into fertilizer. They might turn into something. There's an economic value on that fish somewhere. But why would someone do a, do a study off of Belize? That seems like for such a yeah. kind of obscure fish. So that particular study, um, they were focused on this area. It's called uh, Glidden Spit, okay. Gladden Spit, and it's basically an area where the coral reef kind of meets a drop off to deep water, and it's a very unique habitat where a lot of different fish species spawn. Um, so that study was kind of looking at a whole bunch of different species, gotcha. like they had some snappers, mm -hmm. um, several spawning aggregations, and they were seeing which species they actually could observe spawning aggregations happening for. So it's just, it's kind of just a unique habitat that they were looking at more so than the Interesting. Jack. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And for the, you know, for our, our, you know, for our tagging, Carissa started tagging and this is all, you know, with the um, low keys guide association and guides um, that volunteer time to put tags out with us, which has been super awesome. Um, we, we wanted to know if those Florida Keys jacks are Florida Keys jacks, or maybe they're just, you know, South Florida jacks. Maybe they're Louisiana jacks. I, we just don't know the extent at which they move. So we sent some tags to colleagues in Louisiana, and then we've been tagging in Florida and in the Keys, trying to figure out like where do they go. And so far, we've had you know, year data, and the farthest they've gone is the St. Lucie on the East Coast and Tampa on the West Coast. But the you know as people download these receivers which are basically hydrophone or just you know microphones hydrophones on the water um there's a bit of a delay in, in when people go download their data and then they share it with the mm -hmm. network yeah. so we're hoping that as as we get more data because i think what is the oldest jack we've tagged is it a two years now or a year and a half yeah so we started tagging in january 2019 so yeah a little over you know a year and a half yeah so hopefully we'll know more but that's a big question like are we seeing, are these jacks just not in, in the keys, the big ones that people are seeing offshore and these big ones that will be behind rays and flats? Do they just move somewhere else because there's just not good foraging? Do they get fished out, you know, and sort of became shark bait? Do they, um, do they just, uh, is the temperature or the climate 
taking them somewhere else where it's better to feed. You know, fish like to be in places where things are profitable for them, where it's just, there's food, right? As you know, so is it, are we seeing something where in the lower keys, it's just not good foraging habitat for them and they're just moving elsewhere uh, or they're just been fished out? Hmm. Interesting. Um, okay. Well, have you um, learned much about the the diet of the Jack Crevel? I mean, obviously you look at the fish, it's got a jaw structure that looks like it, it eats mostly live yeah. fish, but you can catch them on all kinds of stuff. You can catch them on um, shrimp and I'm sure they eat tons of shrimp. They probably eat squid. They probably eat, uh, I would think almost anything that gets in their way, but I would think that that is also has to become an interesting part of your study of like, okay, well, if they're not here is what they're eating is, has something changed with what they're eating and has that moved off, which would of, yeah. of course make the fish move off. You know, if the mullet move away, then the jacks are going to follow. Um, do you know anything about the diet or how that has played into it? Yeah. So there, um, there's actually was a study in Florida looking at Jack Reval diet uh, several decades ago. Um, and they found, first of all, that they digest their food very quickly. So <laughs> anything that they eat is basically unrecognizable after about four hours. <laughs> so you have to get to the jacks very quickly after they eat. Um, and they also tend to either have a full stomach or a completely empty stomach, which goes along with what you would see. You know, you kind of see jacks crashing on the surface, just demolishing these um, schools of fish and, you know, they'll, they'll kind of eat sporadically like that. They're very opportunistic. They seem to just kind of eat whatever is very abundant, any kind of fish, um, you know, ballyhoo are an important prey source, um, other pinfish, other fish species. Um, so they're pretty much, yeah, they're, they're pretty voracious. Yeah, they're going after schooling fish, yeah. fast schooling fish, uh, copiates that are um, these schooling foraging. And one of the, you know, a cool thing too from doing these interviews and guides is we also get to pick their brain as to causes of decline. And one of the things that came up in a, maybe a couple of the interviews, mm -hmm. right, um, was this idea that you know the ballyhoo we we have a, a persaining fishery for ballyhoo and those big schools of ballyhoo are we're not seeing them as much in the lower keys. And obviously it's a big bait industry and jacks are will be hitting those you know people would be seeing those you know those big jacks hitting those hard and we're not seeing the bait and we're not seeing the jacks. Wow. Um, could that be a cause of decline? Maybe. Um, that's certainly a possibility to consider, but it's uh, it's hard to get data, you know, to tie these pieces together. Like Carissa was saying, some things we can we have data on, like we can try to figure out if it's an effective temperature, but prey, that's a harder thing to figure out. Like same thing for bonefish. Is prey a big issue bonefish being, you know, food is such a strong motivator, but getting data where the prey are and how our fisheries are tracking those resources in space and time. It, it's a hard thing to do. Right. It's interesting with fish and, and other animals too. I mean, like, you know, land animals will do the same thing, but they'll eat certain things more at, at certain times of the year. Like, like the tarpon may be really keyed in on mullet for a certain time of the year. Other times it's shrimp and other times it might be crabs, you know, like you in Boca Grande or something, you have this big crab flush and you're going to be lucky to catch something that doesn't, uh, catch a tarpon that on something that doesn't look like a crab and right. the same kind of thing I'm sure is happening with the jacks. The jacks have such an interesting jaw structure. And then when you catch them, they've got the crushers in their throat, mm -hmm. which I mean, just, you couldn't make a, a more just ferocious fish. 
like the the giant trevally is is another one and it'd be interesting do you know how how closely those fish are related like as, in scientific terms are i mean they're all a part they're all in the jack family but yeah then, they're all the same family but they're different species yeah, yeah totally different species but and and the giant trevally will get much 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 larger than the jack crevel but both of those yeah. fish are just one of the most scary i mean if you were a bait fish that is not <laughs> you do not want to see a school of giant trevally or a school of jack crevels coming at you i mean even even when you go to a close relative and you see the horse eye jack which is yeah. it is it is a much much less ferocious fish yeah. and then you go to a permit which is a is something that's very closely resembles it and they don't have any any teeth at all they obviously have a much different diet. They're a shy fish. They're, you know, in a pompano is kind of the same thing. But then you you just kind of step up that ladder of aggression and ferocity, and the yeah. jack is just right there. I mean, even even more so than like an amberjack. An amberjack yeah. is is not it's not Nowhere's built near. like the like the jack crevel. It's the pit bull of of fish. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> it's just like a perfectly built fish, right? For speed, for ferocity. I mean, they're mm -hmm. just, you know, they're perfect. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we like to think of permit as like fancy jacks. They, <laughs> you know, that's about it. But they're basically a jack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, they are. That's one of the things that I like so much about the jacks is the, is the, the, the width of that family. I mean, something like an amberjack yeah. that, that is longer and skinnier and lives deep to, you know, a permit or a pompano or, I mean, is a look down a jack there? Yeah. They a jack? Yeah. So they're a look, I mean, a look down, that's a, that's a crazy looking fish, but they're yeah, all in this one family of jacks. Yeah. And, and obviously this modality of, of existing as a, as a fast, you know, pelagic predator or, um, you know, with that, you know, thin body, the sign for speed, or, you know, maneuverability, that's a, that's a successful strategy, you know, that, that has made it, you can see that multiple species are convert have that modality of being because there's certainly something to it. Um, certainly, there are other ways of being a fish, but this is a particularly good way of fishing for us. We we are concerned about them, and they're unregulated in all coastal states. Meaning, you can take in Florida, what's the regulation? Hundred pounds, pounds or two fish per person per day. Um, Whichever one's greater. Along the Atlantic coast, like in some states, there's no regulations at all. So, so that's a. So in your experience um, with with doing scientific studies on on other game fish and stuff like that, when you have a fish that is unprotected like that, that is showing signs of decline, what's the process of bringing that to the attention of Florida Fish and Wildlife or or any sort of a government agency that might might be the decision maker there and and then how do those recommendations go down like is that coming from the scientists or is it coming from the scientists and the fishing guides and and whoever wants to attend the meeting like how does that typically happen and and what may happen yeah, with the jacks we're so excited because we're right there for jet with jacks um, and it's a bottom-up process. And I think we saw that with Barracuda in the Florida Keys, right, when we had the decline. Um, and we're so excited because we'll have, we can contribute to those to those patterns and putting some numbers. You know, it's always nice to have numbers that back up the sense of what the guides are getting because then the whole thing is more robust. And we can say, well, how much protection do they actually need and where do they need it? Do they need it in South Florida, the entire state? Right. The entire Gulf? Like, what, how big are we talking? So 
um, so it's a really bottom up and believe it or not, it is those narratives and those impressions of the anglers that are, I would say even, I don't know if we're thinking of, they're more important than the data. Because that's why the process gets started. That's how yeah. FWC, I don't know what do you think or something. Yeah, I've heard some people at FWC say exactly that. You know, sometimes it's if you have enough fishermen, enough stakeholders, like kind of crying out that something's an issue, that really pushes the management forward. And then they will have a bunch of, you know, workshops and meetings with stakeholders They'll take all the available scientific evidence and they'll kind of put it all together and come up with a management uh, recommendation. And then that kind of goes to the commission and it does some back and forth and eventually it'll go into law. So we are right. So we're super excited because Jack's were, what's the priority? They're a medium priority. They were, yeah, officially listed as a priority item on this year's FWC uh, management plan, like work plan and then then that would be i'm sorry to intrude there but uh that will be um jack crevel specifically or like all of the jacks just jack jack crevel specifically we'd like to see this for more jacks in the future but jacks is sort of a starting point to bring that because they're all unregulated so they're all in the same fate and especially and more concerning for the yellow jacks because they actually get eaten Uh, although there is a bit of a we you know there's a commercial fishery for jacks it's pretty minor but or Jack Crevel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that there are some markets for consumption, but they're minor relative to other species. But yeah, so we, um, you know, the, the FWC has heard these concerns from guides that's made it to the years of FWC and FWC said, okay, this, let's make it a priority item uh, for this year. And it can happen kind of quickly that this process of stakeholder meetings and back and sort of putting data together Hopefully, you know, our hopes is that within a year we'll have some jack regulation, hopefully. I think it's interesting that you look at uh, as much um, as you're looking at, like where where these fish are spawning. Because like a lot of times, like a, a fish might not need protection just everywhere. But if you could protect mm-hmm. those spawning grounds or you could protect them at a certain time of the year, then... You know, it, it might make a huge difference, way more of a difference than if you just said four fish per day, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, that may make a difference, but looking into it deeper, like what you're doing on a scientific level of trying to figure out like where these fish are spawning, how they're moving, what they're eating and, and then trying to make a, a reasonable uh, recommendation to the fish and wildlife of, you know, these are very sensitive areas that basically it's the fish factory. If you protect yeah. them here, there's going to be plenty everywhere else. And, That's a uh, good point. Yeah. And, you know, the Chris, I was mentioning this earlier, when you find a spawning aggregation, it's usually a multiple species spawning aggregation. So if you protect this aggregation, you're protected mountain snapper, you're protecting many, many species, you know, you're protecting permit, you're protecting jacks, you're protecting grouper. Um, in many of our fisheries, you know, throughout the Keys are tapping onto those spawning aggregations, meaning where fish go reproduce. And all fish come from spawning aggregations. So, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't come from mysterious places. It is at the spawning aggregation where fish are made. So if we kill our sores, then, yeah, like, just like you said, that's perfect. That's certainly a, a, a big, big issue. Now, when you're doing um, studies on, on, on things like a Jack Crevel or a Barracuda, you know, you have lots of different interests that a lot of different people make their living on the ocean and mm-hmm. they're not all sport fishermen. 
and you have commercial fishermen, you have fish, you have people that are fishing so that they can make cat food. You have people that are fishing so that they can make cosmetics. You have people that are fishing so that they can do all of these different things. So when you have, um, when you launch into a new study, like a, a Jack or a Barracuda or, um, some bait fish study, do you ever encounter resistance that you didn't expect? So, yeah, with the jacks in particular, I mean, we've had a lot of support from the recreational guide community. And I think we haven't had a whole lot of pushback from the commercial guys, mainly because jacks aren't like the biggest commercial fishery down here. They don't care as much about them. But with some other species, sure, we get, you know, pushback and we need to. We, we try to make sure people know that, you know, we we don't want everybody to stop fishing. You know, that's not our goal. Our goal with science is to figure out how we can balance human demand with these populations so that everybody's happy and we can everybody can continue fishing for a long, long time into the future. So, yeah, you know, ultimately one fish there to be there tomorrow. And that's always our priority that they have to be fishing quality tomorrow should be better hopefully than it is today not you know not as we have seen in so many fisheries where it just it keeps getting worse and a lot of that means how do we you know how do we how do we maintain the sustainability of the fishery into the future while we you know with more anglers and more boats and sort of how do we figure that out that balance and things some things are really obvious like let's protect the spawning irrigations let's make sure those when fish go reproduce and make more fish let's make that a safe process for them. Let's make sure they get to do that. Um, and then the size limits obviously are targeting trying to protect those bigger females that are much better mothers that are, you know, certainly going to have to have more eggs. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's, there can be uh, contention, but I think if we put in mind, you know, for, for us, what motivates us as, as fish biologists is always what's best for the fish. So if we focus on that, then things become really clear. Like we have to protect the spawning irrigations. Like there's just no, <laughs> you cannot take, you know, you know, kill the moms and expect to have more fish next tomorrow. That's right. not going to happen. Uh, so, you know, like uh, some resistance that you might get from some place that you didn't expect it is like, it's brought to your attention that, oh, well, the muttons, we're not catching as many mutton snappers as we do. And you do this research and then you say, well, that's because people are fishing for them during the spawn. And then they're like, well, that's when we catch them. Like, well, right. that, you know, I mean, and so all of a sudden it might not be the people that brought it to your attention might be the people that are like, well, we, we, hold know, on, right? hold yeah, on, hold on. We don't want to, we don't want to not fish for them then because that's the way it's right? easiest. But, you know, we've done that with bonefish. I mean, we used to, you know, sort of, you know, a lot of the mortality of those older bonefish, we used to put them in our wells and bring them to the Lorelei and we know that resulted in some of those fish dying and we killed our own fish, right? By fishing them and bringing them to tournaments and they're super sensitive to being out of the air for, you know, 20, 30 seconds. Um, they die. They just, they're not, they don't cope with being out of the water. We, we can do better. And we've known that, you know, we've looked at our own fishery, right? And said, okay, that was not the best way to go about, go about that. Right. And we, we've done those, we made those changes. Um, because we have more information. Like we know 30 seconds for a bonefish, it will kill that bonefish. It will dramatically change the ability of that bonefish to escape a shark attack or a shark, you know, a shark event. Or just, you know, we fought those fish, basically ask them to run a marathon and then stuck their heads underwater for people. That's the equivalent. Yeah. 
you may have a heart attack. Yes. <laughs> right. So, so, well, I'm very excited about um, all of the different information that we've talked about today. And certainly I love this Jack study. I just, I think they're, I think they're awesome. So, so glad to hear that. Yeah. No, I think. <laughs> I uh, well, Jack work project. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you're going to find that a lot of fishing guides, um, a lot of fishing guides, like, I mean, that's the whole reason that they brought it to you is that, you know, this is something that's kind of interesting. It might be something that you want to look into. It's a very valuable fish to recreational fishermen. And, uh, you know, some people don't want to admit it, but you know, the, the thing that's wrong with the Jack, like we've talked about the perfect, it's the perfect game fish in so many ways. They just fight too hard. They, I mean, yeah. it's the same thing with an amberjack. Like if, I don't know, it's funny. People want a fish that fights real hard until it doesn't, until it fights too hard. And then they're like, Oh, don't want any more of those. The, the yeah. Jack <laughs> trash fish, you know, right. <laughs> it's like, but, but if it just didn't fight quite as hard, people would probably love them, you know? <laughs> Or, or if they would just be a slightly harder to catch. I mean, like the difference between yeah. a Jack Crevel and a permit. Permit's a little harder to catch and people yeah. can't get enough of them. But the Jack Crevel, you throw it out there and they catch them. And but, you know, at the same time, Jack's got your back whenever it's a bad right. day. I'm telling you, man, I would never I would never uh, diss the Jack or, or want to uh, want to not see them. I want to see more and more of them because they are great fish for for everybody. It's a great I mean, there's so many anglers that got their start. Uh, because they caught a Jack Crevel. Like mm -hmm. that was the most, you know, you come from a, a pond in, in, in Mississippi and the biggest right. thing you've ever caught is a four pound catfish and you catch I a mean, four pound Jack and yeah. you're just like, wow, that is wow, amazing. I, <laughs> I mean, seriously, it crashed a lure on the surface. So, I mean, there's just so many redeeming qualities to the Jack. I'm glad to see you studying it. If people wanted to follow your research or learn more about it, or, or even one of the things that I was going to ask before, if, if somebody has a mortality uh, with a bonefish or something like that, and they want to contribute to the study, can you kind of fill us in on, on how to follow you on social media and how to, how to contribute to the study if, if they have something happen with a fish? Carissa, do you want to fill them in yeah, a little bit? So, Especially for jacks. So we have um, a website um, that we can you know, we can send you the link to um, with lots of information on the different projects we do. It has our contact information on there. We also have an Instagram account. It's FIU Fisheries Lab, um, which it's FIU underscore fisheries underscore lab. Um, so you can follow us. We post a lot of um, information about our ongoing projects. Um, and you can reach out to us there. Yeah, for some for some projects, we definitely need assistance from you know the public, like collecting things like your bonefish. Yeah, um, we're definitely you know if anybody wants to reach out with, to us and you know help out or even just learn more about what we're doing, we're always open and, and always yeah. willing to talk. And, you know, we've been collecting ear bones from jacks. So especially for larger jacks, those, you know, over 10, 15 pounds in Florida. So people uh, have one and, and they want to, uh, we can tag them. We've done that. Um, or we can uh, sacrifice it and take the ear bones and look at their history of where they've been. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending this much time with us today. I really appreciate it. I know I would love to have you on again to talk about some of the other studies that you're doing and and uh, whatever you're going to do in the future, because it's super interesting to me and my audience. I mean, you just you hunt these fish your entire life. And then when you start learning like 
about their about their range and their travels and their migrations and stuff so many things start to make sense like oh yeah well i never caught them that kind of that time of the year or or you know they kind of move through like a migratory bird or whatever um it's just super interesting and i know a lot of people that listen to this are going to going to have the same feeling but thank you very much for your um for your work and for spending this time with us and uh we'll do it again thanks so much yeah. and happy birthday ah thank you thank you it's my it's my big birthday it's right here you see it right there um all right so thank you hannah for that i appreciate it um okay well that's it for today and uh, you guys go follow that fiu fisheries lab on instagram it's pretty cool I saw, you see a lot of different stuff that they've been doing and um you know, support them, support their work. And uh, you can find out stuff that might help you catch a fish. That's one of the reasons I follow accounts like that because see what's going on anyway. All right. Thank you girls. I appreciate it. We'll see you later. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.